What is up? Thank you for tuning in to Renegade Files, your podcast destination for stories of the paranormal, the unsolved, and the depths of high strangeness. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, coming to you from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files episode 39, The Trinity UFO Crash. Shortly before the much-publicized events at Roswell, long before our modern soft disclosures of ATIP, and just one month after the first nuclear weapon detonation test, an unidentified craft crashed on a ranch just beyond the perimeter of White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. The military ignored the crash for days, during which time it was investigated only by some very young cowboys who witnessed the crash and explored the downed object. Soon, one of their fathers also visited the crash site together with a state policeman. Whatever these first-hand witnesses saw was eventually carted away by the army, and the mystery of this unknown object became, simultaneously, one of the most interesting and least known UFO events to ever occur on U.S. soil. So saddle up and ride out with me once again into that most active of window areas, the American Southwest. Together, we'll take the Renegade Files Railroad back in time to the final days of World War II and investigate what could be one of the most important occurrences ever in the world of UFO studies, the Trinity UFO crash. Trinity UFO so many times the tale of a UFO sighting is just who saw it, where and when they saw it, and then any corroborating witnesses and evidence, all that. That's what you end up with when just one or a few people see something in the sky for a few seconds. Those experiences can be amazing and important, but this case is even more so. We have a lot going on in this case. A UFO crash, recovered materials, multiple witnesses, the state police, the military, the first nuclear weapons tests, World War II, and the end of that war a few other important events here, and all of those things happened in a specific order as they relate to this case, and that order has to be presented properly for us to fully appreciate the levity of the Trinity UFO crash as we know it. So it took some work, and I feel good about the content, so here we go. Part 1. Young Guns According to research done by Paula Harris... Cattleman Faustino Padilla leased 190,000 acres outside of the small town of San Antonio, New Mexico, from the Bureau of Land Management throughout the 1940s for $99 a year. Padilla had been operating a successful cattle ranch on the land for some time when World War II began. By the mid-1940s, most of the able-bodied American adults of that day had been sent away to fight for the Allied forces in the war, and as a result, the Padilla Ranch was making do with far fewer cowboys and hired hands than would have been ideal for such a large cattle operation. 
They also raised and tended sheep there, so there was a lot going on. The ranch was, as I mentioned, near the small town of San Antonio, New Mexico, not to be confused with San Antonio, Texas. The 190,000-acre property was also just 18 miles north of the Trinity Nuclear Weapon Test Location and the White Sands Missile Range. So all the men being off at war caused a lack of staff for the ranch, and that was something that drug out from around 1939 until about 1945, and it was the main reason that Padilla's young son, Jose, and his friend, Remy Baca, just nine and seven years old respectively, were riding horseback on a section of the ranch to check on a cow. I think they were also mending fences. This job they were out to do, basically find and tend if needed a cow due to calf, is also the reason the boys had powerful binoculars, and those binoculars become an important part of this story coming up. Now, much has been made about the credibility of such young kids, and our modern sensibilities can hardly grasp letting kids that young into the wilderness alone on horseback. But these were different times and different kids. Most of the grown men were away for the war, and cattle still had to be tended. People back then had more kids for the very reason that they needed help on the farms. These two boys had been working on the ranch together for some time, so this wasn't their first day out on the range. Some skeptics have also questioned why such young boys would just happen to have a pair of powerful military-grade binoculars on them. They had the binoculars and they knew how to use them because part of their job was not only finding cows on the open range, but identifying the cow's brands and even specific animals from far away as to not waste their time chasing down the wrong animal. On this day, they knew the general area where the cow was and searched until they arrived at a rocky slope where they tied the horses and continued on foot. While searching for the pregnant cow, a storm blew in, so they took shelter below a rock outcropping to eat their lunch and wait for the rain to pass. Amid the storm came a flash of glowing light that moved across the sky from the east-southeast, and the boys heard a loud crash and felt the ground shake, and they both agreed that whatever had caused the light and that crashing sound was not lightning and thunder. This was at the tail end of World War II, so people were on edge, still worried about the possibilities of attacks on U.S. soil. The Trinity atom bomb tests had taken place a mere 18 miles from the location of the ranch where the boys were, and in fact, one of their mothers was blinded in one eye from watching the first explosion from her kitchen window. It's just part of the overall illness of war that the American military and government would test a live nuclear weapon in a populated area, not tell the citizens of that area that they were going to do it, and then further lie that it had been a munitions dump explosion. Those kind of things are called cover-ups, and it's not the first and it won't be the last. But the boys had seen and heard the Trinity nuclear test explosions, and they likened the sound of the crash to the distant bombs being detonated, so this was a loud crash. Soon the rain stopped and the boys saw smoke rising from an area known as Walnut Creek, 
which is a tributary that leads to the Rio Grande. They thought the smoke must be from the location of the crash, so they set out in that direction. I think by this point they were on their horses again. They emerged from the tree line and crested a small hill, and from there they saw that the communications tower, what Remy Baca called the Marconi Tower, was bent over, and beyond the damaged tower, they saw a long trench had been dug into the ground, and smoke filled the air. One of the boys took up the powerful binoculars and through them saw, at the end of the gouge cut through the field, a large, solid, metallic object that was, as they put it, shaped like an avocado. At first, they thought it must be some kind of military plane or apart from a plane. There was an army airfield at the White Sands Missile Range nearby, and the boys would have seen many planes taking off and landing from their ranch. They took turns looking through the binoculars and confirming with each other what they were seeing and speculating about what it might be. They knew that if a pilot crashed on their land, they were supposed to help, so they cautiously started toward the object. But while still half a mile or so away, they saw that the object had a hole broken into it, and they guessed that the hole had been caused when the object struck the radio tower. They moved cautiously closer, and as they did, they began to find pieces of debris from the crash scattered about the ground. Remy picked up a sheet of thin metal that was as light as a feather and would return to its flat, smooth shape after folding or crumpling. He put this, what would eventually be called memory metal, into his saddlebag and the two continued. They also came upon several tangles of glowing wire which they called angel hair. They stretched it out, coiled it up, and saw that it would glow brighter and then dim and shift colors from pink to purple to white. This wire was connected to no apparent source of electricity or battery. It was just mysteriously glowing and lighting up. They stashed that as well and rode on. From about a quarter mile away, they stopped to take another look at the object. Put yourself in the mindset of two young kids who had grown up with World War II and all of the news about it being an active part of their entire lives. They would have been very careful about walking up to anything that had crashed, like a plane or a helicopter, because for all they knew, it could have been part of a German, Japanese, or even an Italian attack on U.S. soil. Unlikely in hindsight, but at the time, no one knew. The war may have been technically over at this point, but the exact end of World War II is still debated, and news traveled much more slowly in those days, so these kids weren't taking any chances. They took cover in a small stand of brush, and through the binoculars, they looked at the downed object. Through the hole in the craft, Jose saw light shift, and something inside the object moved. Then... As he looked, the unmistakable forms of life. 
In shock, he watched three living creatures emerge from the hole and inspect the craft, and he was speechless seeing that they looked, as he described them, like giant ants standing up on two legs. He handed the binoculars to Rame Baka, who also saw the creatures, and described them as looking like praying mantises. They said these creatures were about four feet tall, had heads that were egg-shaped and much too big for their bodies. They had large pointed oval eyes, what they described as baby's mouths, and long spindly arms and legs. They were insect-like in appearance, gray in color, and were either unclothed or wearing skin-tight suits. The boys said the creatures moved about but didn't exactly walk. Rather, they seemed to glide or float across the ground somehow. Remy Baca said that they seemed to, quote, will themselves from one position to another in an instant. This is important because it's the first of many parallels this case shares with other crashed or landed UFOs and alien encounters over the years since, and we'll go over all of those together in their own section, so stay tuned for that. They also said that the beings seemed to be agitated or arguing, and that they gave the boys a feeling of dread. While observing the creatures through the binoculars, Remy had flashing visions of people falling from skyscrapers, even though he had never seen a skyscraper. The visions gave him nightmares that lasted for years after the sighting. Remember also that this was two years before both the Roswell crash and the Kenneth Arnold sightings, so these kids would have had little or no media influence as far as descriptions of aliens were concerned. There was science fiction in those days, and Mars and the speculation of life on Mars had been kicked around for quite some time. The boys watched these creatures for hours until the sun began to set and they were forced to ride home. That evening, the boys told their cattleman boss and Jose's father, Faustino, about the crashed object and the creatures they had seen. Faustino was not alarmed and he thought that it was probably some military craft from the White Sands Proving Grounds nearby, which was what it was called at the time, and that whatever creatures the boys were describing were probably just pilots in uniforms or perhaps helmets and protective gear that was unfamiliar to the boys. The father agreed to go out and see the crash and said he would do so sometime in the next couple of days. The following day, the boys were again working cattle in the same area, so they returned to the site to find the crashed craft was still there, but on this second day, there were no signs of the creatures. They measured the object by pacing it off and found it was about 30 feet long and 14 or 15 feet tall. So you can see, by things like that, that these kids were capable and smart. The older boy, Jose Padilla, wanted to go inside the ship but the younger Remy Baca was very scared and he begged Jose to leave the crash site so the two boys headed home once again in the fading light. The day after that which would have been three days since the object had crashed Faustino Padilla, state police officer and family friend Eddie Apodaca and the two boys headed to the crash site by truck with the boys giving the directions as they drove. 
As they approached the crash site, they saw the damaged radio tower and the scar in the ground beyond, but they could not see the object. The boys swore it was there, and Faustino navigated the truck over the rough terrain and trails to get closer, and as they moved nearer to the object, it slowly came into focus and was more and more visible. Not just from their augmenting the distance, but because the craft had been camouflaged. Branches that had not been there before were now placed on and around the crashed object. They parked the truck and Faustino told the boys to stay put. Faustino and state policeman Eddie noticed that the ground around the object had been cleared and cleaned up. There was no more scattered debris as the boys had described. From the truck, Remy and Jose watched the men climb through the hole and into the craft itself. According to the boys, the men were inside for about 10 minutes, and when they climbed out and returned to the truck, they were quiet, somber, and as one of the boys said, quote, like different people. They told the boys to never tell anyone about what they had seen there, and for over 50 years, they did not. Part 2. Military Involvement On the same day and time of the crash and the initial discovery of the object by Jose and Reme, Army pilot Colonel Jay Brothy was inbound to land at the airfield of what was then called the White Sands Proving Grounds, what we know now as White Sands Missile Range. While advising the pilot's approach, the air traffic controller at the base requested the pilot first fly by and visually inspect a communications tower at the north end of the range on the perimeter of the Padilla Ranch because the base had lost contact with the tower. This was a tower that served both military and civilian communications for the remote area. The pilot did so, and he confirmed by radio that the tower was damaged, bent over as if it had been struck by something. He saw the damaged ground beyond and the smoke, and he flew over and described the downed object. He said it was a metallic, egg-shaped object about the size of two trucks, embedded on a hillside, apparently crashed there, and he also said that he saw what he thought were in his words, two young Indians nearby. But these were most likely the two young ranch hands on horseback. Everything the pilot saw corroborated what the boys described, and his observations also placed the boys on the scene at the same time that they said they were there. What's interesting here is that this was immediately after the crash, the military pilot reported it as such to the nearby base, and the crash had also damaged communication equipment, in fact, an entire radio tower. And yet, the military took no immediate action. They didn't send anyone to repair the tower or inspect this crashed object, and this is strange, particularly in light of the fact that these are the final days of World War II. If the war was technically over at this time, it only had been for a few weeks at most. But no personnel at the nearby Army Missile Range goes to see what crashed 18 miles away? 
one possibility is that they knew what the object was, so that's why they weren't worried about it. But even if it was one of their experimental crafts, wouldn't they want to go get it right away? And the same thing goes for some enemy craft. And if it was a sensitive experimental craft, and they knew it had crashed, then they also knew that other people knew about it because the pilot described the boys being there and seeing it. Them not going to get it right away seems strange. It's just odd that they knew something crashed so close to the base and it damaged a radio tower they use on the way down, but they didn't go check it out. Eventually they did, but only after the landowner reported the object which leads us to the next stage of this event. After their visit to the site, it was Jose's father, Faustino, and the state police officer, Eddie Apodaca, who reported the downed UFO to the nearby military base. They began making plans to investigate. This would have been the Army and the Army Air Corps because the Air Force had yet to be established as its own military branch. After investigating the crash, the military installed a fence and a gate at the ranch access road for the official purpose of recovering the object, which they said was a downed weather balloon. Two years before Roswell, the weather balloon cover story already being used. Army officials told Faustino Padilla to tell anyone who asked about the military presence on the land that the army was mining manganese on the property. The army worked for days to recover the object and they had to use an 18-wheeler to haul the craft away. A downed weather balloon of the type used at White Sands in that era can fit into a pickup truck bed. As the soldiers worked, the boys would sneak up onto a nearby ridge to watch them. The men had to build a frame to hold the craft on the flatbed trailer and once they had it loaded, they covered it with a tarp. With the craft finally loaded, the army personnel working on it took a break and went to the nearby Owl Bar and Cafe to eat. Seeing this as their last chance to look inside the craft, the boys made their way to the trailer, climbed under the tarps, and Jose Padilla climbed through the hole and into the craft. He said inside the floor was flat, There were no obvious controls or seats, and the only equipment that was visible was some kind of bracket on one wall. He used a pry bar they found on the semi-trailer bed to pry the bracket off, and they made off with it. They were gone when the army came back and hauled the craft away, but the boys still had the memory metal Baca had found. The bracket Jose had stolen and the glowing wire, which the family actually used to decorate their Christmas tree for years, but they eventually threw it away. It's like when your mom cleans out your closet. Mom, what happened to that glowing, color-changing, illuminating wire that generated light without electricity? You know, the one I got from that UFO? Oh, honey, I threw that away. Mom, I wanted to keep that. Jeez. Part 3. The Best Kept Secret The two young cowboys didn't tell anyone about this crash for 58 years. Jose Padilla left San Antonio in 1954 
and Remy Baca left in 1955. They lost contact from 1955 until 2001 when they found each other online through social media. Remy Baca was living in Washington State and his old friend Jose Padilla was in California. While messaging each other online, they both recalled their long-held secret about the UFO and aliens they had seen crashed in their childhood. They decided that the war was long over and that it was time to tell their story. They reached out to another old schoolmate, Ben Moffat, who was then a reporter for the Mountain Mail, which is a local Socorro newspaper. Reporter Ben Moffat published their tale as a two-part series in the 2003 November 2nd and 6th editions of the paper. Italian UFO researcher Paola Harris later came upon the case through this article, and she arranged to fly out to Washington State to interview Baca in 2010. By then, Baca and Padilla were in their 70s. Paola Harris did the bulk of research into the case initially and through her work and that of a few others. James Fox also interviewed Remy Baca. The story made its way to Jacques Vallée, who became intensely interested in the case due to the physical evidence involved, mainly the existing bracket, because that can be studied. It seems that, as I said, the glowing wire, or what they called angel hair, that had been thrown away, and the memory metal had been used to repair a leaking windmill water pump fitting on the ranch and has sort of been lost to time. Both Harris and Valet visited the site multiple times and have researched the case and interviewed witnesses and poured over documents, and their work has resulted in their book, Trinity, The Best Kept Secret, by Jacques Valet and Paola Harris. The book is good if it is somewhat long-winded. It could have been half the length. I think that's mostly because the story, although it's complex, isn't a terribly long story. So there is some stretching out going on in the book. Much of the research I found when digging into this case centered around Valet and Harris making radio, YouTube, and podcast rounds to promote the book, mostly Harris. Valet has the bracket and is studying it, and as far as I've been able to find out, it's made of aluminum, which is obviously common on Earth, but Valet says it's an extremely pure aluminum, like we would have to make it in a lab under very specific conditions. There are pictures of the bracket, and I'm not sure if anyone has ever figured out if it's earthly or not, but it does look pretty ordinary to me, but who knows? I'd think that if it was some mundane object, like a windmill part, that someone would have pointed it out by now, especially when scientists led by Valet are actively trying to figure out what it is. From what Valet and Harris have said, the object will end up going to Rice University, how and why there, I have no idea. But on the topic of the bracket, this leads us into the interior of the craft. We have interior descriptions from Jose Padilla because he went into the craft when it was on the army flatbed, and from the father and the trooper who went inside it and either told the boys directly or were overheard by them talking about it in the truck ride back that day. This case aligns with others in another strange way, which is the incomplete nature of these craft descriptions. For example, those described by Bob Lazar, Travis Walton, and the witnesses in this case, 
have a decided lack of practical controls like machinery, windows, or obvious navigation equipment. They don't seem to have radar, thrust and steering controls, seating, storage. It's odd. It makes it seem like the crafts are unfinished or almost incomplete, as if they exist somehow between our world and some other world. Something only partially manifested into our dimension. That's out there, but it's cool. It's true that if you look at the interior of a Tesla, there's very little in the way of visible controls. It's all touchscreens, and when those are off, they look like nothing, and so it's possible that these off-world crafts, if that's what they are, employ methods and technology that we don't understand. Obviously, we don't, but it feels like more than that to me. Lazar said he felt some kind of living intelligence to the crafts he says he worked on. Something organic. The Valet Harris book gives us a good deal of detail about the case, but rather than just repeat it all, I want to use their information to draw parallels between the Trinity UFO case and some other famous events that have taken place after it. These parallels are what make the Trinity case so interesting. Going over these similarities is basically our conclusion for this case, that and a few other ideas, so let's get right into them. First of all, we have striking similarities to the Aerial School UFO sightings and ET encounters. We covered the Aerial School in Renegade Files Episode 8, the Aerial School Alien Encounter, and it's one of the most credible and important cases ever documented, so check that one out for sure, Episode 8. Both Trinity and Ariel involve the following aspects. Young kids observed aliens from a distance. The aliens were gliding versus walking and the creatures were giving off feelings of dread. And witnesses received some form of telepathic visions of destruction and chaos. This is interesting because these are very specific experiences and occurrences. The kids at the aerial school watched the aliens and some of them were a little bit closer to them and just like the Trinity case they said they were gliding instead of actually walking but the way the kids or at least some of the kids at the aerial school put it they said they were floating across the ground but pretending to walk and that's always stuck in my mind as being unusual very interesting. The next parallels to another UFO case concern the shape of the object. The Trinity UFO is the same shape and size of the egg-shaped craft seen and described just 12 miles to the north by Lonnie Zamora in the Socorro UFO crash, which we hit in episode 12. Both Trinity and Socorro not only have egg-shaped crafts, but they both involve creatures that were observed around the object by first-hand witnesses. Also interestingly, these two UFOs, one crashed and one landed, were both seen by New Mexico State Police officers. And the Socorro UFO isn't the only one the same shape and size as the craft in this case. The Trinity UFO is also the same size within 10 feet of the famous Tic Tac UFO filmed by naval aviator Chad Underwood. The Cowboys said the Trinity UFO was about 30 feet long and the Tic Tac UFO is said to be 40 feet long. 
The Tic Tac UFO is also oval-shaped, like the Trinity and Socorro crafts. We also dove deep into the Tic Tac, Go Fast, and Gimbal UFO videos, and all of the intrigue surrounding those in Renegade Files episode number 6, Military UFO Footage and the Pentagon UFO Report. Be sure to go back and listen to that one, or share it with your UFO-loving crew if you already caught it. Doing things like that really helps the show, so thank you. Also, Trinity, The Aerial School, Tic Tac, and the Socorro UFO sightings all took place in daylight and involved what seemed to be nuts and bolts physical UFOs. The Trinity UFO case is also connected to nuclear weapons due to the first test of such bombs happening just 18 miles away and exactly one month prior to the sighting. UFOs, as we know, seem to also have been interested in nukes in other such cases, such as the Malmstrom Air Force Base sighting and nuclear warhead shutdowns. That was our very first episode. Also, the Randlesham Forest sightings, one of my favorite Renegade Files episodes, and this isn't meant to be the greatest hits of Renegade Files, but moving on, Russian nukes were allegedly turned on by UFOs. We can even go back to the Hudson River Valley UFO sightings being connected to the Indian Point nuclear power plant. So, the Trinity UFO is one more UFO event tied to the emerging nuclear age. I have to say, in researching this case, I took a peek into the Hudson River Valley UFO sightings, and that is definitely on the list coming up. Not the next show, but on its way, because that story is phenomenal. I can't believe it isn't more well-known, so we'll get into that too. Hudson River Valley UFO sightings look for it soon. Another similarity the Trinity incident shares with a well-known case concerns the Virginia-Brazil alien encounters. In that case, possible living aliens were also seen by children in daylight as well as several adults, and the Virginia creatures were also described as being insect-like exactly like the Trinity aliens. One of the last similarities between Trinity and another UFO case, and it's a big one and we touched on it a bit, is the memory metal found and kept by the boys. They described it as being thin, shiny, and metal of some kind that could be folded or crumpled and when released would spring back to its original gleaming, unwrinkled state. Memory metal exactly such as this was described by Jesse Marcel, Frankie, the firefighter's daughter, and others as being part of the original recovered Roswell materials. So the Roswell connection is cool. Jacques Vallée points to the Trinity UFO event as being at least as, and perhaps more important than Roswell, because unlike Roswell, at Trinity there were witnesses who investigated the site immediately upon the crash, rather than days later, and that the Trinity crash gives us physical evidence, metamaterials we can take to the lab that were never confiscated by the government as in the Roswell case. Also, we know the precise location of the Trinity UFO crash, unlike Roswell, which is still debated as to the exact location of that crash site. Also, the actual downed craft at Trinity was seen by several people that we know of, including the two boys, the pilot who flew over the site, He saw both the crash craft and the damaged communications tower. The father, the state police officer, and the army officers who retrieved the crash. On the Mystery Wire podcast for 10-22-2021, 
George Knapp interviewed Jacques Vallée, and the two got on the subject of whether or not the Trinity case could be a hoax. Vallée's response to that idea was, you don't hoax a UFO by crashing a five-ton flying avocado. One elephant in the room here for anyone who may have already looked deeply into this case is the speed at which Paola Harris seems to try to support this case and others with potentially dubious evidence or shaky personas. In more than one interview, I've heard her make a great deal about the idea that noted contemporaries of the Trinity crash, Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein, as well as President Truman, all knew about extraterrestrials She implies that these three men knew about the UFO and aliens at the Trinity event and she bases this idea on a supposed letter written by Oppenheimer and Einstein to President Truman. The story goes that Oppenheimer and Einstein wrote a letter to President Truman, before Roswell, entitled, Relationships with Inhabitants of Celestial Bodies. This letter is astounding. One of the most interesting, to say the least, is question and answer number four, which starts on page three, and addresses what to do if aliens wanting to occupy Earth are a moral entity. Amazing. It basically says that if the aliens are peaceful and don't wish to be exposed to everyone on Earth for what they are, the government will help cover up their existence and keep it a secret. All of this would support Harris's conclusions that these guys knew about the Trinity UFO and covered it up. Not saying they didn't, but the catch here is that this letter is part of the Majestic 12 documents and the second release of the Majestic 12 documents at that, and it comes complete with a misspelling in the title. So the validity of the letter is suspect at best. In fact, you could say that the letter has been thoroughly debunked. The misspelled word Well, the first misspelled word is celestial, having been spelled as celestial with an R-I-A-L at the end, celestial. Regardless of what we conclude about the Majestic 12 documents, it is seriously unlikely that both Oppenheimer and Einstein would misspell a word in the very title of a letter they co-wrote to be given directly to the President of the United States. Some people have suggested that they dictated the letter and that the secretary didn't know how to spell celestial or made the typo. But even so, they would have read it before they signed it and sent it off. It just seems impossible. And Harris hangs her hat pretty heavily on this letter. She also gives a lot of credence to Stephen Greer when talking about this case. He's maybe not the worst in the field, but called out on quite a bit including using actors to pretend to be witnesses in his Disclosure Project testimonies before the National Press Club. And besides, exactly what Greer has to do with the Trinity case, Harris never really says. She just seems to want to hitch her wagon to his name. I'm not sure why, and not unlike Valet's name, many would argue. The Majestic 12 thing is probably more of a red flag as far as Harris's research goes. And like I said, I've heard her bring it up unsolicited multiple times. The letter is most assuredly fake. How does she not know that? And even if it isn't, it is, but even if it's just oddly debated and only possibly fraudulent, why bring it up as the truth all the time? It's weird. It's too bad, really, 
because overall I think this is right up there among the most credible and fascinating UFO cases we have so far. Why muddy it up with some potentially and most probably fake letter from the Truman administration days? Seems weird. One last observation I wanted to revisit is this. Who camouflaged the craft between when the boys saw it and when they guided the father and policeman to the site? Someone did. And when the boys went back the second time and measured the craft by pacing it off, those branches weren't there. According to the cowboys, the aliens weren't there either. But maybe they were. And maybe they just hid from the boys that time. Some suggest the army covered the craft with the branches, but that dog don't hunt. Padilla and the police officer had to tell the army about the object, and once they knew, they told the rancher to lie about what they were doing. They cut a fence, built a road, brought in a semi-truck, and carted the thing away under a tarp. It's hard to believe they knew about it before that and only threw some branches over it, given their response once they were told about it. So let's just apply some educated speculation to all of this. If nothing else, it's fun to do. This was a UFO that crashed one month after the very first nuclear weapon explosion within 20 miles of that test during a storm and a radio tower was involved in the crash. I think it's possible that the UFO was investigating the nuclear bomb site and somehow the combination of the electrical storm and the radio frequencies of the radio tower interfered with some systems of the craft and caused it to hit the tower and crash on the ranch. The two boys saw the crash and the aliens fussing about after the incident, but they watched from cover through binoculars and the aliens never knew they were there. It gets dark, the boys leave, and the aliens go about their business trying to fix their craft or trying to contact help to be rescued. Then the next day, the little cowboys return. The initial shock of the craft has worn off for the aliens, so they're more alert. And also, this time, the boys go right up to the craft. The aliens take cover and hide, but now they know their craft has been spotted. The kids leave. The aliens try to camouflage the craft, and they do such a good job of it that the father and the state policeman can't see it even at the end of the trench it dug when it crashed and when they're looking for it. The boys have to convince them to keep driving and only when they're on top of it do they realize it's right there, under the branches and leaves arranged by the aliens. Maybe the aliens also watched the men and the boys on that day, or maybe they were gone by then, rescued by their version of the Galactic Coast Guard. The men go inside the thing, freak out, tell the army, and a logistically complex removal and cover-up ensues. This speculative scenario also reminds me of another case, the one in Texas where a UFO crashed into the farmer's windmill and the townsfolks there buried the alien. That was also during a storm. We also have a paranormal component to the story. When the boys took the bracket souvenir, they hid it under the floorboards of a shack used as shelter by sheep herders who also worked on the Padilla Ranch. Like the crash itself, they kept this object and its initial hiding place a secret. But then, a few days later, one of the sheep herders came to his boss, that is ranch owner Faustino Padilla, saying that he had to quit. 
when Faustino asked him why, the man said that three little men had entered his shack by passing directly through the walls in the middle of the night, and that they asked him to return their property. He thought they were ghosts or demons, and it bothered the sheep herder so much that no amount of consoling or assurances by the rancher could persuade the man to stay, so he did indeed quit and move away. After this, the boys removed the stolen UFO bracket from the sheep herder shack and hid it in an old barn where no one lived. All of this adds up to make a remarkable American UFO case. Before Roswell, before Socorro, and before Area 51, but all within a remarkably close distance to each other, all surrounding the location of the first nuclear weapon detonation. The main witnesses were two kids, yes, but two kids who grew up in World War II and who were serious cowboys who probably did more work in a day than many men now do in a week, and their father, a respected and successful rancher and a state police officer, also saw the object and went inside it. An army pilot saw the craft from the air in the damaged radio tower and he described it to the air traffic controllers at the base. He described the exact object the boys reported, and he also saw those two boys there when they said they were. Army personnel saw the craft, handled it, and carted it away. The army officials also told the rancher to say that they were mining in the area if anyone asked, which, as we know, is not true. That's called a cover-up. If it really was a weather balloon, as the army would later claim, Why not just tell the rancher to say that from the beginning? Do you need to open a fence wider than a cattle operation needs, grade a road deep into a ranch, and bring an 18-wheeler to remove a downed weather balloon? No. As long as we're getting into this, there's also this strange connection to Robert Oppenheimer. We talked a bit about him in the fake Majestic 12-letter discussion. Oppenheimer was a physicist and the wartime head of the Los Alamos Laboratory, and he is called the father of the atomic bomb for his role in developing the Manhattan Project. He observed the first Trinity test. Upon seeing the explosion, Oppenheimer is said to have quoted the Bhagavad Gita by sadly uttering, quote, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Oppenheimer later lobbied for controlling nuclear power and avoiding a nuclear arms race with the Soviets, He also opposed further nuclear weapons development, and all of this caused him to be labeled a communist and his security clearances were revoked. He discovered molecular wave functions, predicted quantum tunneling, and students of his made important contributions to theories of black holes and neutron stars. He was friends with Einstein. But he was also a lifelong occultist, He learned Sanskrit to read ancient Hindu scripts. He was brilliant but strange, and maybe in hindsight, conflicted. He helped create the first nuclear weapons, so he is tied up into this story, not really directly involved with the Trinity UFO. It could have been some crash military device, but if it was, the army took their time getting it back, even after the pilot saw it and a rancher and policeman reported it to him. Who has the pictures of this thing? We have pictures of little Remy Baca sitting a 15-hand cutting horse, and it's the cutest thing in the world. 
He must have jumped from the barn roof to get up there. They got the camera out for that, but no one took a camera to take a photo of the UFO crashed on the ranch. The rancher, the trooper, the army. Someone has a photo of the Trinity UFO. In the end, this is a credible and amazing story of an early UFO and sightings of aliens, or at least some kind of insect-like creatures, and the Harris Valet book might be the closest we come to getting all of the information here. I hope you like this case. I sure do. Thank you so much for going through it with me. To get more episodes and tons of deep content on all manner of high strangeness, visit patreon.com slash renegadefiles or tap the link to Patreon in the show notes or at our website at therenegadefiles.com. Become a Renegade Files agent on Patreon and get bonus episodes, all of the research for each episode, free MP3s of episode background music, and the chance to interact with me and other agents while helping us keep the show free of corporate ads and helping me to keep making the episodes. For just a few bucks, you can do all of that, so check it out, patreon.com slash renegadefiles, which helps indie creators like me stay afloat. I'll see you in there, and thanks to the supporters who helped me there already, I am so grateful. Until our next adventure, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, Martian child. <laughs>